standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. I hope you're all doing okay in week 25 of lockdown. This week I had a lovely chat with Helen Morales who holds the Argyropolis Chair in Hellenic Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She's the author of a number of books including Pilgrimage to Dollywood, a country music road trip through Tennessee which we will talk about in this very episode because, well, love me some Dollywood, don't I? But she's also author of the new book Antigone Rising, The Subversive Power of the Ancient Myths which is described as a witty, inspiring reckoning with the ancient Greek and Roman myths and their legacy from what they can illuminate about hashtag me too to the radical imagery of Beyonce and obviously she had me at Beyonce. We had a fascinating chat about what we can learn from the Greeks and what we should probably unlearn from the Greeks about misogyny. Obviously we touch on Beyonce and indeed Dolly Parton and also about the cultural differences between the UK and the US in terms of how we treat our women. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed chatting to Helen. I'm joined via Zoom by Helen Morales, classicist and Argyropolis Chair in Hellenic Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and, gosh, that's hard to say, author of the new book, Antigone Rising, The Subversive Power of the Ancient Myths. Hello, Helen. How are you? <laughs> I am very well, thanks. <laughs> I feel like I've just sort of been to the just gym. Like the Greek stuff. Yeah. Ancient Greek stuff. I would like to talk to you about a couple of things, actually. But first of all, I would like to talk to you about your new book, Antigone Rising. This book was born of of a rage after some of our students were killed, massacre near our campus known as the Isla Vista killings. And that was done by a misogynist and uh, racist killer. He left a manifesto that was profoundly misogynist and racist. And I knew... I wanted to write about that and write about the attitudes that led to the loss of some of our students. So that's one origin of the book. More positively, I've been teaching Greek myth, um, now teaching and researching Greek myth for many, many years. And one thing that struck me was that students often respond to myth in ways that I hadn't anticipated. Um, So over the last 10 years in particular, uh, trans students and gender non-binary students have been seeing validation and affirmation in ancient Greek mythology that has meant a lot to them. And the normal ways in which we in which you know Greek myths are told and talked about in in scholarship from from kids books to scholarship don't include any of those myths and don't include any of that aspect of them so so this book does two things one is it it talks about how Greek myths have been complicit in and underpin some of the misogynist white supremacist some of the oppressive stories that we tell ourselves today and practices today from dress codes to diet culture to sexual violence. But the other is, it looks at how looking at other Greek myths, maybe not not just the hero's journey, but, you know, other Greek myths, and looking with a different lens at Greek myths can help to empower us today, can tell sort of a different story. Was it it Rebecca Solnit who said, you, you, you know, to change the world, you have to change the story? Well, Greek myths are a really good part of the toolkit for doing that. Antigone is obviously a very famous myth. 
And you say that when you talk to pupils about Antigone, they're overwhelmingly on her side. But you also talk about Antigone as a kind of, I don't know, not a template as such, but you compare modern-day sort of young heroines such as Greta Thunberg, Malala Yousafzai, for example, you compare them to Antigone. And I wondered, do you think that young people relate to those kind of modern incarnations of of Antigone in the same way that they do to the story of Antigone? On the whole, yes. Uh, In my experience, yes, when I've gone into high schools and um, talked about Antigone. uh, I think there's a certain glamour attached to the idea that, you know, even a young girl, you know, often the most vulnerable or marginalised, can can make a difference, right? Um, because I think particularly young people, my, my daughter's 19, so I get to, uh, you know, <laughs> listen into many conversations as well as, as well as talking to my students and going to high schools. I think there's a real despair about what can be done to affect change. And so there's a, a real appeal in those narratives where young women have affected change. So, so overwhelmingly, when I go into schools to talk about Antigone, they think Crayon's a total fascist, Antigone's just, you know, fantastic, right? Mm. Um, and they support Malala Yousafzai and Greta Thunberg. But some of the criticism that Greta Thunberg in particular has got from, and I don't see this so much with young people, but, but has got in certain quarters, she's been um, criticised and, and undermined, particularly for her having Asperger's. Some of that resonates with the criticisms that were seen in medical writings um, in ancient Greece, where women who despaired, women who were um, outspoken, um, were undermined with the idea that they had a disease, Mm. right? That this was a pathology. So they're they're not, I don't want to entirely compare those two circumstances, but it interests me that medical stuff is used to... (laughs) Um, pathologized both Antigone and Greta Thunberg. And Greta has said that having Asperger's has helped her to think differently. Mm. And, and that made me rethink, you know, think, could we look at Antigone through that lens as well? So not to buy the ancient medical writer's view, but to see, you know, even if she had got the disease of the virgins, which is what they call it, maybe that actually gives her an edge. I think I studied the play when I was doing my A-levels or something like that. And, um, yeah, I've never thought of her as anything other than heroic. But the name you point out in the book actually means that she's sort of mad from not being married, basically. Is that right? Well, that's that's according to that medical writer's view, yeah, anti, against, you know, we've we've still got that commonly. Mm -hmm. And then gone air, procreation, that's one meaning of, of, you know, of her name. So sterile, sterile, you know, woman, because she doesn't get married. And that is made something of in the most famous version of this myth, um, which is Sophocles mm-hmm. Antigone. But, but look, you know, when we say she's heroic, clearly in some ways she is, you know, incredibly courageous and brave, but she dies. I mean, what kind of model is that for uh, for feminism? You know, yeah. it's, it's terrible. <laughs> we, um, and we don't want to hang on to that narrative. We don't want our Greta Thunbergs and Malala Yousafzai's to die. Um, and we don't want to hold that that Antigone up as, as therefore a kind of, you know, sacred icon of feminism, which many writers do. And one of the things I do is look at other Antigones that are far less well-known. 
So another ancient Greek playwright, Euripides, also wrote a version of Antigone. And, and his play is lost to us, but there are bits of it and there are, there's some information about it. And it looks as if she got married to her fiancé and, and had a child. Well, that's an entirely different kind of you know, narrative, one that sees a future. I also look at modern versions of Antigone, for example, one by Sarah Uribe, who looks, who sets Antigone in modern-day Mexico. And her Antigone is a very unwilling Antigone, but crucial for her heroine is that she works collaboratively. Whereas Antigone in the Sophocles play is a bit of a pain in the ass. You know, she won't accept her sister's help. She's all about me, me, me. She never says the word we. It's all about, you know, my glory, right? Whereas actually, you know, real real feminist work comes from Sara Uribe's um, Antigones, who who are out there working collaboratively. Okay, so I want to move on to the story of the Amazons, in which you talk about how basically we are defined as good women and bad women, and that is sort of part of the story of you know the, the killings of, of Amazonian women in Greek mythology is basically these values of women kind of underpin misogyny which you argue and I would very much agree with you underscores society rather than individual perspectives the point that you make basically is that the killings of women are not isolated incidents of sort of lone wolves. And it's quite interesting that you talk about Hercules. In the myth of Hercules, he kills his wife, Megara, and their children in a fit of madness. And the same sort of language is still actually totally prevalent around men killing women now, like domestic abuse and things like that. The way that the media covers it, it will be like, you know, nice guy flips. And obviously this links back to part of the reason why you wrote this book, obviously these tragic killings near your university. Yeah, I noticed these patterns between the ways in which Greek heroes were built up as heroes through killing women. And so, you know, every hero kills you know Achilles kills an Amazon Hercules kills an Amazon Bellerophon kills an Amazon I mean it's almost like a you know what makes a Greek hero a hero he kills an Amazon and in some descriptions you know it's a great description of Achilles um, who falls in love with the Amazon he kills Penthesilea as he's killing her and then in one account of the narrative has sex with her corpse, desecrates her corpse, right? We, we tend to sanitise Greek myths when we, <laughs> when we yeah. tell them to, you know, to kids, obviously, but even when we read them as, as adults. And actually, there's, there's a lot of, of misogyny in there, um, and particularly the, the dividing of women into good women and, and bad women as foundational for misogyny is an idea that was, has been discussed very well by Kate Mann in her, the philosopher Kate Mann in her book, um, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. And it struck me that, you know, good Greek women, foreign Amazon women there to be killed, <laughs> who have all of the negative characteristics of women because they, they're independent, um, they, you know, they fight, they do things that good women shouldn't do. There was a lot in, uh, in not only the Isla Vista Killers manifesto, but in successive, I then looked at other school killings and other killings in universities. And there's a lot that resonated with that kind of ideology. It's about putting women in their place. 
and the early reporting, certainly of the Santa Barbara killer, the Isla Vista killer, talked about him as a you know lonely young man, right? Um, not as you know misogyny and racism weren't mentioned, mm. but they're the key drivers of what he did from his own manifesto. So I guess we have the Greeks to thank for this, for for, for misogyny, yeah. or just that you can trace it back really, really, really well, far. I don't, I, you know, I don't want to make any too cute or contrived arguments um, about the relationship between us and the Greeks, right? So I don't want to say that the origins of all misogyny comes, you know, with the Greeks. But I do want to look at narratives of violence that are culturally entrenched. So in that sense, yes, these ideas are, you know, go back to the Greeks and are still validated by and authorised by those, you know, mythic narratives. But I don't want to say that they're the only, you know, <laughs> they're the only thing contributing to misogyny, that would be mad. But, but I think pointing out the differences allows us to see these not just as isolated incidents or even just as sort of um, a modern phenomenon or American phenomenon to do with the, you know, the accessibility of guns, although clearly that's a, a factor, but to see this as a really you know, long-held, culturally hardwired kind of views about women and men. Because it's only when we see them for what they are, I think, that we can begin to combat them successfully. I think it's quite interesting, so the talk about the, the Amazon women, which is almost sort of what became, arguably, a racist trope in mm -hmm. modern yeah. society, the, in inverted commas, exotic whore. Beyonce obviously pops up later in the book and you're talking about her, you know, as her kind of reimagining of mythology in an empowering way. And the reason I segue to Beyonce from that is because I would argue earlier in her career, probably before she had the amount of control that she now has over her image, is that she was actually marketed much more in this kind of Amazonian fashion, but not in a good way. Yeah, I focus on, you know, largely on her pregnancy photos and also ape shit, which is, so it is relatively recent presentations of, of, mm. of her of presentations. One of the things that I discovered when I looked at um, ancient mythology and how it had been used in the modern day is that there's a, a long history of looking at white women, white white actresses, white stars as Venuses, you know, from Joan Crawford to Lady Gaga. But when black women were talked about as Venus, as the goddess of love and lust and you know beauty, it was used to denigrate them. Yeah. So you know Sarah Bartman, Sarchi Bartman, who was displayed, uh, you know, as having an exotic and unusual body and displayed like a creature in a zoo, is is one example of that. And the, and there were there were people who bucked the bucked the trend. So Josephine Baker. Um, who's an artist whom Beyonce refers to, you know, uses some of her costumes and thinks she's aware of the tradition of performance um, but that. But, but Beyonce's able, I think, now to do it in a much more multi-layered and concerted kind of, of way. So she's, one of the things that she does is she, she presents herself as a kind of Venus in those pregnancy photos and in, in some of the apeshit video, you know, as a kind of, of a goddess who is really empowered and, and empowering. And maybe the pregnancy is the part of it, right? That, that, pregnancy, that pregnancy makes it harder to 
present her as as whorish or as high you know hypersexualized i mean so maybe she you know she's partly <laughs> seized on that kind of opportunity mm. but another thing she does i think is to make us rethink or engages with some of the ideas about uh, ancient greece that have been really detrimental so for example the conflation of white marble with white skin and the you know continued representation in books as uh, of the ancient greeks and romans as if they were all white um and uh, insisting on casting mythological figures as if they're white you know she does some clever things in the um apeshit video around sort of color and who gets to own culture who gets to own these ancient myths and there's one brilliant uh, uh, Black Lives Matter protesters outside the Louvre where the video is set, taking the knee, you know, in the Colin Kaepernick stance. Mm. And, and then there's, it's juxtaposed with a shot of the god Hermes, who's actually crouching, not quite kneeling, but it's a very similar, the, the images mimic each other. Mm. And it's like she's, she's got the god Hermes joining the protest, you know, that's, you know, clever, witty and, and inspiring kind of imagery. Yeah, so very, very early on in her career, she was presented, I guess, in this kind of like hypersexualized way. Right. But as she's sort of gone through her career to get to the point that she's at now, where she is obviously an extremely powerful woman, you know, within music and culture and, and whatnot, that she now owns the presentation of her own sexuality. And I think it's quite interesting that you said what you said about her kind of reclaiming the narrative around mythology, because I think she's very much reclaimed the narrative of herself as well, as she sort of become more powerful. If that's very interesting, yeah, it does. I I don't know her early stuff as I'm a big fan. You uh, might have guessed. Uh, Well, I am too, but I have. But I came back to it. I came to it with Lemonade actually, so Mm. maybe fairly late. Hello, Hannah here. Now, as you know, this is usually the point in the podcast where I interrupt to say something about you being able to give us some money via the magic of Patreon. But I know everyone's having to tighten their belts financially and also that there are probably some very worthy charities that you are supporting with your time and money. And so how can you continue to help us? Well, you can listen to us. If you're furloughed, and you're at home, or if you're taking your regular hour walk, why not have a route around through our back catalogue to see if there's anything you haven't listened to? Because listens equals money for us. Equally, you could spend this time spreading the news about Standard Issue. I know a lot of you already do this, but if you see anyone on Twitter asking for suggestions of what they could listen to in this time, just get in there and say Standard Issue. Thank you all for your help and support at this time. And that includes everyone who already supports us on Patreon. So, Helen, another seamless Beyonce link here. Another book that you've written, which I haven't read, but I would love to read. Pilgrimage to Dollywood, a country music road trip through Tennessee. I have myself been on a pilgrimage to Dollywood on a bicycle called Beyonce. Um, Oh, my goodness. (laughs) How have we only just met? (laughs) Well, I, I cycled from Cape Cod to Houston on a bicycle called Beyonce. 
I started in Harwich in Cape Cod because I'm from Harwich in Essex. That's where the Mayflower's from. So, like, all of those bits around there are named after, like, weird places in East Anglia, basically. It's strange. And went to Houston because it is obviously the hometown of Beyonce Knowles. On my bike, called Beyonce, it was like... An homage. Basically, yeah, it was a sort of mission. And I went uh, via Dollywood. Like, Dollywood was always on my kind of, like, I'm stopping there on the way. Dollywood is a fascinating place. And Pigeon Forge, the town that Dollywood is in, is (laughs) an even more fascinating place. I just wanted to know a bit more about your pilgrimage to Dollywood and and what drove this. Because you've obviously got an appreciation for strong women. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I do. Well, I've been a fan of Dolly Parton for a long time, but not a kind of, you know, not a super fan, right? I mean, in the fandom stakes, I'd be I'd be considered pretty pathetic. I, you know, I haven't collected souvenirs or, a, you know, I, I just, I really liked her music. Mm. And I was interested in pilgrimage and pilgrimage sites, ancient, ancient ones, right, because I'm a classicist. And then I became interested in modern ones and Graceland is, you know, a huge modern one. But I then read that 50,000 people every year to the opening of Dollywood theme park, which uh, is is marked by procession with Dolly Parton as the Grand Marshal through that very small town of Pigeon Forge. So every year, huge numbers of people make a pilgrimage to Dollywood. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought and did, did bits of research I thought Dollywood is the only, to my knowledge, the only theme park to be themed around a woman, Mm -hmm. you know, real or fictional. You think the number who are are dedicated to men. And and I thought, what an extraordinary way of of presenting yourself and your biography. And when I went, that was absolutely, I mean, the theme park is, as as you live experience, sort of um, themed around her life. Yeah, there's like a chapel there, isn't there? And there's like a recreation of like the, the shack that she was brought up in, basically. It's... Yes. So I wanted to do the journey. Uh, actually, the, the book was published in a series called Culture Trails by Chicago University Press. And they want that they published in this series sort of journeys that are doable and then, but, you know, sort of discussion around that. And a friend of mine was asked to do a book for the series. And he said, oh, well, you know, I don't know. where would I, I wouldn't mind going to the pyramids, but uh, I don't know. What should I do? And I thought, oh, for goodness sake. Right. And got all, you know, I thought, what a gift. And he said, well, where would you go? And I said, I'd go to Dollywood. Right? And I then crystallized, actually, that I do, you know, what, what I would do in the, in the heat of the argument with him. Um, so that's, <laughs> and then, and then he told the editor, I, I don't know whether it's a joke or a kindness. And the editor said, you know, please write about this. I mean, I'm, I'm desperate to read it because when I, when I first started sort of thinking about this bike trip, like where was I going to go? I sort of thought maybe I'll make it like a musical kind of tour because there's so many like amazing musical sites around Mm. that area obviously there's nashville there's graceland as you say there's somewhere i think it's also i think in memphis i think the reverend al green does his Mm -hmm. sermons doesn't he and then Mm. there's a bunch of other places as well sort of around mississippi and and there and obviously new orleans is you know has a rich musical history it's like a really really fascinating area 
I started, and my partner went with me because I don't drive, so I didn't tell my neighbor to do I. <laughs> well, so I started out with Graceland because that's the kind of, you know, modern pilgrimage site par excellence. And I really didn't like that, actually. There was very little sense of Elvis's music as, as you were sort of processed through. Mm. So that was interesting. It was interesting to me what makes, you know, what makes visiting a site memorable and meaningful. And why didn't it happen? So I was a fan of Elvis's too, but it somehow it didn't it didn't happen for me when I went round Graceland. And then we went to Nashville and looked at how Dolly is uh, presented in the big museum, the Country Music Museum there. And she's you know you know she's not really given much status there. She shares I can't she shares a uh, display with a couple of other people as crossover artists. Right? They don't. They don't really, I think, uh, do as well as they could for her there. And then we went to Loretta Lynn's place, uh, and she's also got a replica of the coal mine. So it's a bit of a trope, the, the replica thing, and a replica of the house she originally lived in mm. that you can visit next to the real house that she mansion that she that now lives in. Loretta Lynn, that's the, the coal miner's daughter, right? Yeah, yeah. She's a, she wrote a song about the pill in the 60s. So one of the great female country singers um, before Dolly. And then to Dollywood, and including so next to Dollywood, which is themed around her, around her and her life and the land there. And as you know, cuts into the Smoky Mountains. So it's also very beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, but next to that, there was a, it's changed its name now. And, and there's a story about why, but it was called at the time the Dixie Stampede. Dolly Parton's Dixie Stampede Dinner Attraction. It's a dinner attraction, and it's set in a huge amphitheatre, and there are over it seats over a thousand people, and um, it's got racing buffaloes, racing pigs, lumberjacks cutting down wood. It's got horses and trapeze artists, and it's a, and it's an extraordinary kind of spectacle. But what it used to do was to theme the show around a recreation. It said a fun recreation of the Civil War. <laughs> a fun um, the north on one side and the yeah. south on the other. That's why it's called Dixie Stampede, yeah. right? And this was sort of extraordinary and horrific, right? So you get a kind of, you get from the pilgrims coming in, you know, a sort of version of American history that glosses over slavery and, you know, <laughs> um, or anything that might sort of distract from the beautiful hoop skirts and um, mint julep kind of culture of, you know, su- beautiful southern ladies and yeah. things. And it was it was a celebration of the South, but it was done in a very unthinking kind of way. And actually, since then, Dolly and her team have responded to criticism about that, and they've they've taken out the Dixie. It's now just Dolly Parton's dinner attraction, mm-hmm. and it sort of has the same narrative, but they don't sing the Yankee Doodle Dandy and the Dixie. I know <laughs> sort of Dixieland kind of songs, and they don't have the colours of the armies for the north and south so it's a bit confused at the moment but um but they have at least sort of responded to that and that was a moment for me because i thought oh god this is i mean this is both extraordinary racing pigs who doesn't like racing pigs i know i Um, do yeah and also (laughs) horrible because as a fan i'd come i'd come across something that i was really quite critical of and that made me cringe a bit and that was a moment I hadn't expected. I'd wanted just to write glowingly about Dolly Parton and her fabulous songs. So that was an interesting moment. 
Well, funnily enough, you've brought me full circle to my last question, basically. I found something at Dollywood that I that made me feel quite uncomfortable. So I don't know if this is still there, because obviously we're talking like five years ago now. So I think of Dolly as like a fairly liberal kind of character, but obviously, you know, she's a product of, of the society in which she was you know she's come from and whatever and the the line between the north and the south is still so so evident in the states when you get into the south like you know like it's not weird to have confederate flags up outside your house that's quite normal to have sort of confederate paraphernalia knocking around there's like highways named after robert e lee and um stonewall jackson Mm. and things like that like where usually in most places the losers kind of get written out of the piece whereas they're still so totally celebrated in the south of america it's it's very very odd but anyway there were in the gift shops at dollywood loads of nra kind of Really? Yeah, T-shirts that said stuff like, "Oh, I can't remember. I took photos of them. I'll have to find them." But they're like really weird, like T-shirts, basically saying like, "Go and buy a gun," <laughs> basically glorifying guns. You know, promoting gun use. Blah blah blah. Yeah, I I didn't see those, but it doesn't it doesn't surprise me. Um, there's a lot there's a lot of very Christian paraphernalia for sale at Dollywood and and I did think that that might be quite exclusive to some visitors but you know one of the interesting things about Dolly Parton I think is she's she is quite true to herself Mm. and that involves embracing some paradoxes so she absolutely has and has always when it was far less fashionable and was really risky to do so Um, stood up for lesbian and gay rights right she's always done that and she's when there was a bit of a scandal a few years back when uh, someone was thrown out of Dollywood for again a t-shirt that said something like marriage is so gay on it and you know Dolly sent an apology and said very clearly Dollywood is for all families including lesbian and gay families Mm. which is you know in in Tennessee is not you know foregone conclusion no um, but she's also she's patriotic she's produced a couple of you know, you know some songs and album in support of the, our troops uh you know and she's a christian and she's and these these groups aren't necessarily exclusive but often they are mm. and she puts them together and puts you know them in dialogue and people in dialogue in in a way that few i think celebrities are able to do Mm. So I'm not justifying, you know, those the NRA t-shirt. I mean, that sends me back to thinking about my students who died, right? So, so with that sort of, you know, with that in mind, you are originally English. Obviously, you now have American citizenship and you've lived in the States for 10 years, I think you said. Obviously, you spent a lot of time in the UK. You spent a lot of time in the US. And I wondered, as a woman... Yeah. Where do you feel is the safest place to be right now? Do you think there there is a safer place to be? Do you think it's it's pretty bleak wherever we look in the world at the moment? Or how would you compare the two places? I think America is much more a land of extremes. So it's in many ways worse. To be, I, mean, I, I taught in Arizona uh, before I moved, moved back to England. I taught for 18 months in Arizona and, and I was pregnant with my daughter 
and I was told by my head of department to have an elective cesarean over a weekend so I didn't uh, interrupt my teaching, right? Yeah. Now, I, wouldn't, I, I didn't get that in British universities. You wouldn't get that in British universities. So in terms of the, the social care, things like, you know, um, maternity leave, you know, the NHS, what they call here socialised medicine with a bit of a kind of, you know, <laughs> bit of disdain, mm. you know, all of that I miss about England. Um, but I think, you know, America's always been interested in exploring new possibilities. And it's, it's a place that's, that's, for me as a, a writer and an academic, been more supportive of thinking beyond disciplinary boundaries, um, writing what I, what I want to write. America's always been interested in, in thinking about what's the best imaginary country it could be. You know, whereas Brits often say, oh, well, mustn't complain. You know, uh, Americans will say, well, what, how can we do this much better? Right? They have a um, bit more of a can-do attitude, don't they? I think it would be fair to say, <laughs> than yeah, the British. Well, certainly working as an academic... That in, I, I couldn't have written the Dollywood book or the Antigone Rising book so easily in the British system, which it would be much more wanting more traditional scholarship and me not to want to cross boundaries into going into other areas. So in some ways, I'm, you know, I, I'm thrilled to be in America, but I live in California and that's very far away from some Americas. You know, it, it's, it's much more progressive. Helen, your book... Antigone Rising is published by Wildfire in the UK and it is available now. Where can we find out more about your various jaunts to Dollywood and whatnot? I'm on Twitter, uh, Helen L. Morales. Uh, I'm not terribly good on Twitter, but I'm on Twitter. And The Pilgrimage to Dollywood is published by Chicago University Press. Helen, thank you so much for joining me. It's been absolutely fascinating and the book is really, really enjoyable and thought-provoking. And I think it's great that the American system let you do this because this is how you entice new people, isn't it? By crossing over and making it relevant to different people. Thank you so much, Jen. It's been a real pleasure. Standard Issue for All Women.